I'm Stephanie McNeil, and I am here with the one and only Alex Berg. Alex! Hey, Steph. Thank Excited you. to be back. Thank you so much for coming it's on. It's Monday, but I have the me. energy. Yes. You Drink have, a lot of coffee. You have great energy. We're going to do this. I have a little bit of a sore throat. I've been kind of like fighting something off all weekend, but I've got some tea and I'm ready to go. Fired up, ready to go for all of these stories and celeb gossipy items that we're talking about today. Well, we have to talk about the most exciting news of the day, obviously. Here's a tweet from Kensington Palace. Their Royal Highnesses, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, are very pleased to announce that the Duchess of Sussex is expecting a baby in the spring of 2019. I was trying to do that in like a little bit of a royal read. But, I mean, Meghan Markle, Prince Harry, those who are talking about, obviously, they're having a baby. We're so excited. Well, one of the things that I appreciate about this is that Friday was Eugenie's wedding, which we covered on the show, and of course, they gently waited until Monday uh, as to not eclipse that news. So ever so polite wedding guests not to uh, ruin the bride's day. Yeah, I was really annoyed on Friday when everyone was like, Megan's wearing a coat, she must be pregnant, blah, blah, blah. I was like, maybe she was just feeling a coat. Maybe she's a little bloated. Turns out I was wrong. She was hiding her baby bump. <laughs> um, so I guess, I don't know, I guess she's really showing. I think she's like 12 weeks pregnant. They told the queen on Friday, according oh. to her. Reports. So yeah, it's very exciting. Well, look, I, I'm with you. I, I hate the speculation that happens around women's bodies whenever there are babies. But I gotta say, in the past, I have not been that big of a royals fan at all. Uh, I don't, I don't really follow them. I may have even uh, acted like they were a little bit below me. But now I have to say that the news cycle of the past two years has worn me completely down, and I am now completely happy and down to find some joy with these royals. The way that I see it is, you know, I have plenty of people on Facebook, I don't know if this is just me, let me know, who I <laughs> haven't spoken to in like 15 years or I like met one time at a party and just turns out their lives are really interesting. And so I follow them and their babies and their updates and I feel like the royals are just kind of like a really rich, really sophisticated version of that. Like, oh, it's like, oh, so-and-so and so-and-so, they had this really extravagant wedding and now they're having a baby. The royals, they're just like your high school friends from 15 years ago. Exactly. Well, on that note, Charlotte Clymer made an excellent point. The next princess prince of the British royal family is also technically eligible to be elected president of the United States. States. And every season of Game of Thrones has taught me this is the way we will somehow get dragons. This has got to be it. Yeah, I think it's super cool. I mean, obviously, we I feel like we're all kind of over the fact that Meghan Markle is an American and now she is a princess. But I, I'm still into it. I think it's awesome. The fact that Americans are even allowed to, you know, marry into the royal family is something that like 50 years ago wasn't allowed. So I think it's cool. I think the baby should be a princess president. It's very modern. I, I I'm here for you for the Princess President. I should write a children's book. Called The Princess President. Yes, that'd Stephanie be awesome. Hill. All right, well, uh, Stephanie, that is happy news, but I am sorry to have to burst your bubble now. Here's a tweet from Aaron. Pete Davidson and Ariana Grande broke up, and now he's got to live his life with like 78 tattoos dedicated to her. How are you holding up? I mean, okay, so I want to be like really real with everyone. I'm not, I'm usually a pretty big cynic. I'm not, I love following pop culture, but I'm not a stan. I don't really get like super into invested emotionally. I don't know if it's that like I'm like slowly eroding inside or something, but I was like really, really hoping they would work. I don't know why. Uh, for you, Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson not making it shows that true love does not last. Yeah, like I just felt like they they worked, and maybe it's just because like I felt like he was so in awe of her. I felt like he was good for her. I don't know. I liked them. I have to say, I have always felt that Ariana was such a goddess that she deserves someone who is like a Nobel laureate, who is you know incredibly accomplished, and I just I always felt like she could do a little bit better. Albeit, I, she's had a rough year. I want her to find love. Yeah, and it was really sad. I feel like uh, TMZ reported that. Basically, after Mac Miller's death, Ariana had to take a step back and realize, like, it's not good for my emotional health and it's not good for you, like Pete Davidson, our relationship, to be in this relationship when I'm dealing with such a huge loss in my life. So that kind of precipitated their breakup, which is really sad. I feel like she's had so many bad things happen to her recently. I wanted something good for her. Well, here's the question. They have a pet pig together, right? Piggy Small. What happens to the pig? Who gets custody? Joint custody. Joint custody. Well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to re-listen to Sweetener and analyze every single line after the show. You should do it. But Twitter, we want to hear from you. What celebrity couple broke your heart when they broke up? So let us use no using the hashtag AM2. Hmm. Who's your couple? That's like, that's like what I said. I, I don't really stand couples that often. So this, um, is, the, this is that couple. 
Yeah, I, I thought it was sad when Chris Pratt and Anna Ferris broke up because I feel like they seem to be like a real celebrity couple. But as my husband always says, the realer they seem, the more likely they are to break up. Well, I have to uh, rep the queer women out here and say that whenever I hear rumors of Ellen and Portia, I get very nervous and sad. Yeah. So, yeah, hopefully hopefully they'll make it. If they can't make it, who really can? I'm pulling for you, Alex. All right, well, moving along to some more news. We just pushed publish, publish on a story revealing that documents reviewed by BuzzFeed News showed TD Bank loaned $3 million to a company connected to Russian tax fraud. Here to explain how this happened is science reporter Azine Gureshi. Hey, Azine. Hi, guys. So, Azine, how do these documents impact the Russia investigation? Right. So, so the main premise of this story is that um, back in 2012, uh, TD Bank loaned $3 million to this company called Prevazone um, that, you know, in their sort of routine uh, customer due diligence that banks are required to do to find out, you know, where their clients got their money, what they're planning on doing with it, et cetera. Um, they basically found out that this company had, you know, already been fined for um, an Israeli money laundering operation and that they were likely linked to this $230 million Russian tax fraud that was the biggest in its history. Um, and, you know, despite these major red flags, TD Bank still decided to move forward and, and give them this $3 million. So why it matters now um, is, A, this company Prevazone um, has now been linked to the, the infamous, highly scrutinized June 2016 Trump Tower meeting. Um, their lawyer was one of the people present, um, as was a consultant that works for the company. Um, and second, um, bank documents like these are factoring in hugely to um, both the Mueller investigation and the congressional investigation into possible um, Russian interference in the, the 2016 election. So, um, you know, both showing the, the flow of money um, and the potential political consequences of that, but also sort of pulling back the curtain on this huge problem of money laundering uh, that, that was sort of able to um, exist with impunity for, for years. Paul Manafort also, you know, is, is, falls into this category of, of sort of being nailed for similar problems. So why would this huge bank not take action on this money laundering? Like, why did they take so long for them to flag it and alert other colleagues? Is this typical in the industry? I think that's an open question. I mean, I think that's the interesting thing to me, at least about this story, is that, um, you know, there are, they, they presumably did everything the way they were supposed to. You know, they had this client come in. There were there were some minor red flags, like the, the owner changed really last minute. They, they said originally that they wanted to um, get this $3 million loan to purchase this expensive property in Manhattan. And then they actually end up ended up saying that they had already purchased it and they wanted to take it out in cash. These were slight red flags. Um, but then they did, you know, they commissioned this report um, to, to really look into the customer, the, the potential customer. And they, you know, pulled up all the information that you would think a bank would need to say, okay, maybe this is someone we shouldn't be handing over $3 million to. Um, but then they did anyways. And it's, it's still unclear, you know, was it the fault of um, certain employees at the bank um, or was this something that was happening um, often? What we do know is that um, several major banks across the world, Western banks, have gotten in trouble in the last year or so, especially for, um, you know, sort of turning a blind eye to billions of dollars that have been flowing um, out of Russia, uh, you know, to be cleaned off, essentially, by Western banks. You mentioned uh, these other banks as well. Will they be investigated? Um, those banks have been investigated. I think it's an open question about what, what will happen with TD Bank. Um, obviously, this happened in 2012. Um, but, uh, you know, what we do know from, from talking to banking experts is, is banks are supposed to flag anything suspicious that happens. Um, you know, people, whether it's suspicious wire transfers or, or something like this, where, you know, you have a client that's clearly, you know, trying to do something maybe not super above ground with the, the money that they're asking for, banks are supposed to flag that within 30 days to the treasury. Um, you know, financial crimes are meant to be investigated based on banks sort of waving the first flag to say, hey, look into this. Um, and, and in this case, TD Bank did not do that. So um, I think we're curious to see what will, what will happen as a result. Obviously, one of the huge implications from this report is what impact it could have on the Mueller investigation. Do we have any idea what that could be? 
Um, I think that is also an open question. I mean, I think one one thing that's clear is sort of the Mueller investigation is um, is drawing increased scrutiny to this problem of money laundering. So money launderers might, might be getting in more trouble now than they would pre-Mueller. Um, what this will actually do as far as, as figuring out Russian interference in the 2016 election, I think is still an open question. What we do know is that, you know, the Trump Tower meeting, um, Natalia Veselnitskaya is is Prevazon's lawyer, and she was there lobbying on their behalf um, against this Obama era law that punished companies like Prevazon for money laundering. So it's unclear, you know, exactly what what happened there. But um, I think this is an interesting extra data point for us to consider. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, and we actually just tweeted out the story. So thanks so much for joining, Azeen. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, I would definitely encourage everyone to read it. It's a great investigation and a great series. Moving along, Purveyor Shalwani tweeted, A brawl broke out in Manhattan after members of the far-right group The Proud Boys watched their leader speak at a local Republican club, then clashed with protesters. Three people were arrested. And Will Summer tweeted, The Proud Boy event that preceded the street violence was held to celebrate the murder of a Japanese socialist in 1960. Purveyor and Will, reporters of The Daily Beast, join us now. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Now, for our viewers who might not be familiar, who are the Proud Boys and why was their founder invited to speak at a Republican club? Sure. Uh, the Proud Boys are sort of one of the, the most bizarre political movements going around right now. Uh, they were started by Gavin McGinnis, a co-founder of Vice magazine, who's kind of become a right-wing uh, character. Uh, and basically, he started it as a, a drinking club uh, for kind of young men with uh, essentially very reactionary views. Uh, more recently, they, they have all these rules. It's like, um, you know, you get beaten in to the club. Uh, you know, they have rules on their, their sexual activity. Uh, and so they hang out and they drink and they go to rallies. Uh, and especially they'll go to right-wing rallies and kind of get in fights or attack uh, liberal or, or Antifa. In, in, in and they, they get in these brawls. So why would these people be celebrating a murder? Right. Well, okay. So, I mean, that kind of gives the, the big thing with the Proud Boys is they say, oh, we're not violent. We only act in self-defense. This sort of gives the lie to that. So this murder of this Japanese politician in 1960, I believe, is something that's that's uh, memed a lot on the right-wing internet. Uh, they love it. It, it. it was recorded in a video because it happened during a speech. And so they do a lot of remixes. They do a lot of memes about it. Uh, and so, I mean, it, it's very explicit. I mean, they're saying, and including Gavin McGinnis, who's their leader, I mean, they're saying this, this fellow who assassinated the socialist politician is a hero. Uh, and, and sort of encouraging people, you know, and, and not explicitly saying go kill socialists, but I mean, what they're saying is, you know, Gavin McGinnis says, don't let evil take root and stuff like that. So then, you know, the, the Antifa show up and then, then there's a clash. So you're talking about some of the clash, but actually nobody in the Proud Boys was arrested this weekend. What do we know about why the NYPD didn't arrest any of them? The NYPD at this point is in the process of, of trying to figure out exactly what happened. I mean, I think there was some mis you know, understanding and, you know, partially on their part that there were three people arrested and those three people definitely appear to be part of the Antifa group. That was a totally side incident compared to the actual, what we saw on, on video. Uh, and they're trying to sort of unpack what's happening on that video. Uh, at this point, they have three suspects that they're looking for. Each one of them has been identified in the video as either punching or kicking somebody who was on the ground that we've all seen. And now they're trying to identify who those three people are. Uh, and I would imagine you're going to see their names and some arrests coming uh, soon. Will, you mentioned something that seems incredibly bizarre. I wanted you to expand on it a little bit. You said these men are beaten into the club. Does that mean like yeah, so physically be beaten? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it's generally pretty light punches. So there's four degrees of being a proud boy. First degree is you declare you're a proud boy. The second degree is other proud boys will punch you and it sort of varies how intense they get with the punches. And the beating doesn't stop until the proud boy says the names of five serials. Uh, and the, it, it, I know, I know, but, but the idea is that, uh, you know, it, it's your showing you can keep cool under pressure. So there's all these videos on YouTube, for example, if you type in proud boy initiation, uh, it, it, it's quite a strange scene. And then the ultimate proud boy rank is essentially getting in a fight or getting arrested uh, on behalf of the proud boy cause. All right, so obviously they have some uh, bizarre rituals and some fringe beliefs, but they have also been violent uh, at other protests and other events. And Gavin McInnes was, of course, invited by this Republican club. What are some of the kind of larger implications, uh, especially within the Republican Party, uh, of the assaults this weekend? 
Sure. I mean, I, I think it's a troubling example. Uh, the idea that, that uh, you know, the New York Republicans would endorse and host this speech about a political assassination that then ends in this, this street brawl or this mob attack. Uh, you know, I think it's worrying. We've seen the New York Republicans dig in on this. I mean, they're, they're backing Gavin McGinnis and the Proud Boys even after this incident. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it's another example of, of this kind of disturbing, violent rhetoric. Well, it's definitely a very strange story and a very strange incident. So thank you so much for unpacking it for us, guys. Thank Thanks. you. Um, now, of course, we are going to go live from the district, but we have a huge show for huge. you today. I can't, I can barely get it all out. <laughs> Later, comedian Ike Barinholt is here for a special edition of Fire Tweets. Plus, Alex sits down with Mira Sorvino. And then Hay sits down with Monty Python legend Michael Palin. So much stuff. Stay Shout tuned. out to Patrick. Very excited. Very and excited. And Michael Palin. <laughs> excited for Patrick. Welcome back. We're going live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Hi, good morning. Paul, I love your flannel look for the start of fall. It's finally feeling like fall here in, on the mid-Atlantic region. <laughs> okay, I have a serious question. Fall is my favorite time of year. I'm super happy. Serving yeah. fall okay, looks, Paul. Serving fall looks. So I have a very serious question for you that I know you're going to be really excited about. Where were you when you learned about the new royal baby? I, uh, I, you know, my goal today was to make it through the entire day without knowing anything about this. But unfortunately, I was sitting on my couch scrolling through Twitter this morning and did see some news about it. I was hoping tonight, I didn't even know who was pregnant or what. Uh, and I'm trying to learn and pay attention to it as little as possible. That's my approach to all royal drama. Well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but I don't know. I think it's exciting. But let's move on to some other news. Here's a tweet from David Enrich of the New York Times. We obtained confidential documents showing Jared Kushner's personal finances from 2009 to 2016. Despite earning millions of dollars, he appears to not have paid federal income taxes for most of those years. Paul, you sent around this story this morning and you said you were super interested in it. And I read it on my way in and I was kind of disgusted by it, honestly, the fact that he has not paid income tax. How was he able to do this? Because it doesn't seem like that's something that most people are able to do. Yeah, I mean, well, the, the brief summary is that real estate developers are able to use something called depreciation, which is just uh, the concept that your your asset, in this case your, your property or your development, gets less and less valuable over time. I mean, this makes sense, and you can think about how your car gets less valuable over time. Um, of course... They are still bringing in all kinds of income on these properties, and it doesn't necessarily tie to the actual decrease in value. But that doesn't matter. Well, the point is that they can take this depreciation, they can file it for tax purposes as a loss, and then you can apply that against your income and your income taxes. So all of that is a long way of saying that you can make a bunch of money off of a building, but for tax reasons, you can be shown as losing money on the building, even though you haven't lost anything material. And then you can apply that against your income, and you can come out ha not having to pay any income taxes because purely fictionally, I mean purely for tax purposes, you are losing money. All right. How does the uh, new tax law also treat this kind of deduction? Yeah, I mean, people, always, politicians always talk about wanting to simplify the tax code and to to you know make it really what was Paul Ryan's whole thing about how it should like fit on the back of a stamp or whatever like, I mean like they, they always say that it is always bullshit they like having a complicated tax code because of reasons like this you want to have a tax code full of these uh, <laughs> I don't want to say I don't I mean like again I, I want to be clear no one is breaking the law or anything but because you don't have to break the law because if you get the law written in a way that helps you out then this is what can happen and the new tax code is full of things like this I mean this was they for all the talk of closing loopholes and all that they didn't really do that there actually were some that were closed but then other ones were opened up I mean this practice uh, is completely unaffected by by the new tax bill and people are still doing it today that's what I think is the most interesting and I think infuriating to many people who read this story was the fact that, for one, we want to be clear, this is not breaking the law, this is in the tax code, but the tax bill was so hyped as this way to make things fair and close the loopholes and simplify everything. But there are provisions in the new tax law that uphold all of this so Jared Kushner and his father-in-law can 
continue to do this in their real estate dealings. Are there other provisions that make it easier to do this kind of stuff in the new tax code? Oh, I mean, well, we saw uh, just, the New York Times has been doing great because they've gotten these leaked documents. And between this and what we saw in the their story, was it, geez, was it last week or two weeks ago now, I guess, um, about Trump's uh, tax returns, the other ways in which that he was able to essentially skirt 500 million dollars in taxes. And I mean, what this has really revealed is that these practices are completely commonplace. I mean, we are only seeing one little uh, sliver of them because we've got these two people's tax returns. But these types of practices are out there. They are being used to give, I mean, rich people preferential tax treatment. If there's one thing we've learned from these stories coming out, that it is not an even playing field. That if you are a multi-multi-millionaire uh, property developer, or, I mean, in, in one of many other uh, industries, there are all kinds of ways that you have to make more money, to save more money, to dodge taxes that the average person does not have. Well, let's move on to a, another story. Uh, here's a morning tweet from the president. Just spoke to the king of Saudi Arabia who denies any knowledge of whatever may have happened, quote, to our Saudi Arabian citizen. He said that they are working closely with Turkey to find an answer. I am immediately sending our secretary of state to meet with the king. Paul, this tweet strikes a softer tone than his comments this weekend and Saudi Arabia's threats of retaliation. Can we expect this to lead to any answers about Jamal Khashoggi? That's a great question. I, I think there will have to be answers because there's just too much attention on this. I mean, certainly, you know, in Turkish politics, there's, there's so much outrage about this. There, there's going to need to be an explanation. Now, the question is whether it will be truthful. I obviously don't know what happened. But if Saudi Arabia actually murdered this reporter, I wouldn't expect them to actually admit that. So uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, we've seen talk now of maybe it was rogue elements. So we will get something. <laughs> but the veracity of that, I am uh, I'm not super confident in. But I mean, we just don't know yet. Yeah, I was on Twitter before the show started and I saw something floating around about it being blamed on rogue elements floating around an embassy, which is interesting, uh, to put it very, very plainly. Uh, so... Well, I mean, if you want to get really conspiracy theorist of it, which I, of course, do, oh, let's go uh, <laughs> that is the out, right? Like, I mean, you say, you say, okay, no, no, this wasn't us, this was rogue elements. I mean, this raises all kinds of other questions, like how they got into the embassy and all that. But, I mean, that that is the one face-saving answer here, I think, that allows everyone to just continue on peacefully. So, I, I, I don't know. That's totally my conspiracy brain, but I think that's why we're going to see more and more of that. Yeah, I mean, when someone gets killed, just blame it on random murder. I don't know. But I think one of the things that's very interesting about this story that I think people are wondering is why does Trump seem hesitant to go full court press against the Saudis on this? Well, you know, we talk a lot uh, these days about the ways that the Trump administration is uh, totally uh, off the rails or breaking from the norms of uh, U.S. government. And in this case, he's not at all. This is completely on par with how administrations treat Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia has a terrible human rights record. They have committed atrocities. And yet we still trade with them. We still sell them stuff. Uh, they are the basically key North American ally in the Middle East. And that's a very, very valuable uh, relationship, both financially and geopolitically, for America. And they are very, very, I mean, they being like any administration, not just this one, are very, very hesitant to, uh, to get into any kind of fight with them. And it is, I think that's why this is such an uncomfortable position for Trump to be in, because, I mean, obviously you cannot be supporting a regime that just murdered a reporter. Uh, but also, you desperately do not want to get in a, a kind of feud with Saudi Arabia. And that's why uh, I think they're not going to, I mean, for all this talk of sanctions, I don't think we're going to actually see any concrete reaction unless they absolutely have to. And we've already seen from Trump a, a willingness to want to believe that they didn't do it. He was repeating, you know, the denials. No, we didn't. Uh, Saudi Arabia says they didn't kill this guy. So I, I think if they have any possible out where they do not have to, to really stand up to Saudi Arabia in this, I expect them to take it. I mean, this is one of those stories where I feel like the U.S. doesn't want people to find out about and get outraged about because they do, I mean, we do kind of sweep all of this under the rug. And when people read about these things and they get outraged about these horrible human rights atrocities, the Trump administration is kind of like, whoa, like they just kind of want it to go away. But it's good that we're reporting about it and talking about it for sure. Thank you so much, Paul. 
Nice talking with you guys. Have a good one. Stick around. Our special Fire Tweets with Ike Barrenholtz is coming up. But up next, Alex is going to talk to Mira Servino. Very exciting. Very excited for this. Here's a tweet from Mira Sorvino. Okay, this seems simple enough, but we are all just people. We all love our children. We all yearn for meaning in our lives. We all strive to do good. We all bleed red. There is no us in them. There is only us. Mira Sorvino, actor and activist, joins me now. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Now, uh, we are going to get to all of the work that you're doing now. I know you are pretty busy, um, but you have long had many causes that uh, you stand uh, behind. And um, now you are launching the Thriver Movement with celebrity trainer Anna Kaiser. Um, what is it? Uh, the Thriver Movement uh, is, well, we're in a partnership with Lily. Um, basically, they did a survey of people living with metastatic breast cancer. And metastatic breast cancer is the form of breast cancer that has migrated from the initial site in the breast to other parts of the body. And when it goes to other parts of the body, then it's called metastatic breast cancer, stage four breast cancer. And currently there is no cure for metastatic breast cancer, so it's currently a terminal diagnosis. And yet only 7% of all the money that goes to breast cancer charities goes to funding research for a cure for metastatic breast cancer, which is very topsy-turvy and crazy because 40,000 people, 40,000 women, 41,000 people total die every year from this disease. Men get it too. And that number hasn't significantly changed for 40 years. So all the attention that we have on early detection and mammograms, um, it's all well and good, but it actually hasn't changed the statistics. 30% of all breast cancers, no matter what stage they're diagnosed at, will eventually metastasize. You know, I love the idea of uh, taking this narrative around what's been happening and reclaiming it as, uh, you know, Thriver and kind of flipping mm -hmm. that on its head. Um, yeah. But this issue really touched you in a personal way. Can you tell me how you kind of got involved with it? I've lost two of my dearest friends okay. in this world to metastatic breast cancer. The first one was Karim Noack, uh, an incredible dancer from Colombia. She was my originally my flamenco teacher and then my salsa teacher, and she was kind of the salsa queen of the Lower East Side. She would take all of her students around to club and partner all of them and teach them how to do all these incredible moves. She was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer in uh, 1995, and she actually lived a really long time with it, but she succumbed to the disease in 2012. Oh, and the end of her life was truly a horrible, I mean, to see the kind of agony she was in, to see the way that the tumors were kind of coming through her skin and deforming her skull was horrible. Yeah. Um, and then one of my dearest friends from childhood, Champagne Joy, we grew up together. We shared so many amazing adventures in this life. And then she got this breast cancer diagnosis and it was an earlier stage, but then eventually it metastasized and she became metastatic and therefore now had a terminal diagnosis. And she got angry and she got active. She became an activist. She formed something called Hashtag Cancerland, uh, which is a sort of peer support group, people living with the disease uh, from everything from like which treatment options were possible, what clinical trials are happening to, are you going for chemo now and you need somebody to watch your kids and, and walk your dog and clean your house? We'll do it for you. Um, and she was very outspoken and loud and proud. Uh, you may have even had her on the show. I don't know. She was very mediagenic. She had blue hair, crazy Japanese makeup, mm -hmm. like a real amazing, authentic person who was so full of life. And she brought me along on this journey through all this activism. I, I marched on Washington with her. We did, um, you know, we advocated for the passage of certain laws that actually ended up being passed. And we don't know if we actually did it, but we certainly contributed to it, um, to the raising of funding at the NIH for research. We held fashion shows, uh, Anna Ono Intimates Times Cancerland, where all the runway models were people living with breast cancer, some of them metastatic. Um, and Part of our Washington advocacy is we had something called a die-in. And you lie on the f floor, on the ground, in front of the Capitol building. And everybody lies there and holds hands, and they toll a bell 113 times, because that's how many people die in this country every day from the disease. And the first year I did it, I was laying there with champagne, and we were looking up at the sky. And I was definitely feeling like, is this going to be like the last time I'm going to see her? And it wasn't the last time I saw her, but half a year later, she was taken from us. And then the next year, I was there on the lawn doing it, and she was one of the people we were ringing the bell for. And that is not acceptable. It is not acceptable how little is done for this community of people that are dying all the time. And Champagne used to say, 
you know, they expect us once we get the terminal diagnosis to go off and die quietly with dignity in a corner. We're not going to do that. We're going to be loud. We're going to get better or we're going to get better at it. And uh, so I'm just carrying on her legacy. And I'm so proud to be a part of this Thriver movement and the More for NBC movement. And every time you post one of those posts with the with the Thriver pose and the hashtag More for NBC, 100 bucks is going straight to those three wonderful advocacy partners of ours. Well, you know, speaking of uh, being open and vulnerable about many causes, um, so over the past year, you've spoken out a lot about uh, your own experience with Harvey Weinstein, and of course, we are coming up uh, on the one-year anniversary, it actually just passed, yeah. um, that where the Me Too movement really, really took off. Um, how do you see the movement, how do you think it's doing right now? Um, I think in general, it's doing great. And, uh, you know, I was, I decided that for the past year, I would really try and put my efforts in, in it, supporting um, actionable solutions. You know, because in my history as an activist, you know, I've been an activist for a while, first with the Amnesty International and their Stop Violence Against Women campaign as their spokesperson. And then, you know, since 2009, I am an ongoing uh, Goodwill Ambassador for the United Nations on human trafficking. And throughout this sort of activism journey, I realized that, you know, awareness with action, without action is hollow. You know, it's a one-two punch. It's great to have awareness, but if you've just awakened people's knowledge about some problem, but then don't give them something they can do about it, it was a failed, missed opportunity. So what I tried to do is take all the passion and rage and pain that we were all feeling about all these incidences and then the discovery of the wave of millions of people with similar oh, yeah. experiences who raised their hands in a chorus of Me Too men, women, you know, LGBTQ, non-binary people, old people, young people in all venues, the church, schools, businesses, everywhere, we realized, oh my God, this is really so much bigger than anyone actually really ever talked about before. Well, it's the thing, we were, you know, we haven't even been socialized or taught that this is something that we should bring up no, ourselves. everybody buried it, and, and I buried it, and I buried other incidences that have been torturing me since then because this is all this sort of PSTD, like, triggering. Absolutely, yeah. But, so what I did, I was like, okay, what can I put myself behind? And there was some legislation in California, and it was a group of bills about sexual harassment called hashtag take the lead, and I put my whole heart into sponsoring them. We threw a, an event at SAG-AFTRA. We interviewed all these people from the Hollywood community and heard from all these people, from child actors to you know, all members of our work community saying how they had been harassed and how it had been this slippery slope. Because harassment for me, I see it as the gateway drug. It leads to worse offenses. It's the testing ground for a predator to see if somebody's vulnerable and if he, he or she can apply enough pressure that if he gets away with the harassment, then it'll go on to to assault or rape or a coerced relationship. So there is this group of bills. Uh, we did a lot of advocacy around it. And then I, I called all of the people in the assembly and the, the California Senate to try and get certain ones passed within the legislature. They did get passed. And then they landed on Governor Brown's desk. And then there was a month of silence. And it went all the way up until the last day of the month. And we thought he was going to veto all of them. So I wrote an op-ed for the LA Times. People Magazine picked it up. I did Alex Michelson's The Issue Is show. Um, I wrote him personal letters. I wrote him several personal letters. And the night of the last night he could possibly do it, he signed three out of the five of them. So uh, you know, did we want him to sign all of them? Yes. Yeah. Were we especially disappointed that he didn't sign the one that extended the statute of limitation from one to three years? Yes, because that seemed like a no-brainer. Other civil claims have three to four years to process. Why should ours just be one? But he signed some really difficult ones that we didn't think were going to make it through. So I felt that was just like two weeks ago. I was like, OK, you know what? We made progress. There are 19 million people working in the state of California. This is instantly going to affect all of their lives, their ability to seek justice and be protected from predators. So well, so that meant something. Yeah, yeah. You, you know? I mean, you mentioned, you, know, you mentioned progress and also this idea of accountability. And, uh, and prosecutors just dropped one of the charges against Harvey Weinstein. How did that make you feel? Sick. Yeah. yeah. We are finally putting things out there that had been so taboo before or that, again, you know, that we had been taught, like, not even to bring up or anything like that. Now, you have been uh, 
out on the front lines in terms of all of these issues, talking about Me Too over the past year, um, now with this cause. But you, I was looking at your IMDb page, and you look like you have a lot of projects coming out yeah. um, and, and coming up soon. I know there's Condor. I know uh, that you have this project called Startup. Yeah. Um, how are you managing all of these things? It's been a little crazy recently. The last few, uh, let's say, months of my life have been unbelievably busy, and it's a, it's a little stressful because I also have four kids who are my main priority in life. Like, that is my number one priority is my children and their well-being and my involvement in their life. So it's been a big juggling act, but I'm really proud of Startup. Season three of Startup is coming out on November 1st on Sony Crackle, and it's an amazing show. Uh, you know, I really encourage people, especially, you know, the sort of techie audience, it's all about the dark net and moral questions that come with internet agnosticism and privacy issues. And and it's really Shakespearean. And, you know, Ron Perlman and Eddie Gathegi and, and Adam Brody, uh, Mauro Moreira, amazing actors and wonderful people. And I had such a delight joining their cast for the season in Puerto Rico, where obviously also we've seen that devastation that really has not been rectified. So many lives lost, so much inattention from our government to their, their island. But... Um, Really an amazing experience there. And then I have a movie opening this, up this weekend called Look Away with Jason Isaacs and India Isley. It's a, it's a very chilling psychological thriller directed by Asaf Bernstein. Um, I just shot another, another episode of Modern Family. So things, things are really going nicely. I'm about to start two more indies this, uh, this winter. So um, yeah, things are going well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sounds like, yeah, you've many things coming up. Um, one more super quick question that I have to ask before we go. Are we going to get a Romeo and Michelle's reunion? You Is have that to also ask, on your plate? You have to ask <laughs> Disney that. I don't have any control over the ability to use the rights to, to do a sequel. I believe still that Robin Schiff, the creator of the original script and film, and Lisa and I are all still down to do it. We'd love to do it. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Disney, <laughs> I would please answer my prayers. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll be posting more information about the Thriver movement and how you can support it. Do you want to see what the Thriver pose is? We yeah, show me this pose. Okay, okay so uh, are the cameras still on? Okay, so the Thriver pose, and I'm not Anna Kaiser, and she's the expert on it. But basically, the pose, anyone can really can do, do it. You. you sort of center your feet, you lift palms upwards, you lift your arms up to the sky, you open up your heart, and you look upwards, and that is the Thriver pose. And I might not be doing it perfectly, but you don't have oh, to do it Oh, I like it. I feel relaxed, and but also powerful. Yes, take a picture of, of yourself or a video, post it on social, hashtag more for NBC, and $100 goes straight into an NBC charity. Wonderful, well, we're gonna hang here in this pose, but uh, more AM to DM is up next. but online gamers have taken it to a deadly level with what's known as swatting. Amin Ali Akbar, who covered the story for Follow This on Netflix, joins me now. Hey. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. How are you? Good, good. So for those of us who aren't familiar with swatting, what is it? It's basically this prank that came out of online trolling culture, and it's very notable in the gaming community, as you noted, uh, although not exclusive to it, where um, like an anonymous caller calls in a police department and says, you know, I'm here at XYZ address, and I have a gun, and I've you know, killed my father, and I'm going to kill any cop who comes here. And then usually that triggers a SWAT team to come and like put on armor, put on you know like assault rifles, whatever sort of equipment they have, and they um, come to the address and they find that it's just like basically somebody who's playing Call of Duty and has made somebody upset on the internet, and that's how they became a, a victim of the, the SWAT call. Um, although it can be anyone too, like like Lil Wayne and Miley Cyrus have been swatted. It can happen to anyone at any time. Yeah, I remember this happening maybe like five or so years ago with celebrities like Justin Bieber, I think, yep. had a big swatting call. Bieber is a huge victim of swatting. <laughs> so how did this get associated with the gamer culture? But you say it's not exclusive to the gamer culture. No, it's not. Means. In fact, the swatter I talked to said he didn't play games at all. I, it was really hard to find them because it's like sort of on the like 4chan and like other deeper parts of the web where people are doing this. Um, but basically, like, um, so uh, the reason why gamers are more associated with it is I think because it's v really visible for, for them. Um, what makes the like swatting a gamer much more exciting is like people stream on Twitch, so they're live on camera, like we are here, and somebody knocks down the door, and like we get pushed to the ground by by a team of uh, like a SWAT team. Uh, that kind of ups the thrill, I think. So um, that's I think why they're more, most the most infamous swatters. So you looked in the case of Andrew Finch, who was actually shot dead during a swatting incident. Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So Andrew Finch was not a gamer. 
and was not invo actually involved with online cultures at all. He was a totally random victim of a SWAT call. There was two people who were having sort of beef on the internet. Um, one person called another person who was a, known as a serial swatter, and he called um, a threat on a person's, the other person's old address where Andrew Finch currently lived. So the person who used to live there used to play like Call of Duty and all that, and it was a $1 bet. Um, the person who lost swatted uh, that false address, and basically the police came. And there's video footage of this as well. Um, Andrew Finch basically walked out, and like within two or three, like five seconds max, he was shot by a police officer. Wow. Yeah, it was really... Over one dollar. And he had no idea. He had no idea why the police were there. He just heard the noise. He heard knocking on the door. He heard yelling outside. Um, and yeah, he... For whatever reason, the police well, police officer decided to shoot, and he died in one shot. Wow. So yeah, it really has really some really grave consequences. He's the first death um, that is known of. So. So are police departments doing anything, or cities doing anything to make consequences for people who do these false calls? Because obviously, they, you know, not only this horrible case where someone was killed, right. but it's very awful for the police yeah. officers to go out and do this. It's awful for everyone. It's awful for the people who are around the house because they make a perimeter and this huge like tank basically comes in in some cases. Um, and it's hard for the people who live there. Like, some, like Andrew Finch's mom was like on the curb for like two, three hours because they were still checking out to make sure that there wasn't a threat at the house. Um, so some police departments, I think, are more aware of it. And there was a case in Stoughton where a false call was called with like a machine gun at this house. And they like, I talked to these officers who basically cleared out a house, uh, cleared out the perimeter of the house and, you know, sort of like kept the caller on the line and were like, where are you? Point your head out the window. You're not pointing your head out the window. And they, it never escalated so that they, they kept the same level of like, okay, this could potentially be a prank. Um, and those officers actually, you know, had had some experience in like really high stress situations because of the Boston Marathon bombing. Um, so I think it really depends on the, on the, on the, on the city. Well, it's definitely a horribly fascinating trend. And if you're interested in it more, you should check out Follow This on Netflix, BuzzFeed News' Netflix show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Up next, Hey sits down with Michael Palin. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Hayes Brown, and this is The Sit Down. I'm here with actor Michael Palin and author of the new book, Erebus, One Ship, Two Epic Voyages, and the Greatest Naval Mystery of All Time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Good to be here. So the HMS Erebus, yeah. it went missing for 170 years yeah. until it was discovered by a Canadian team in yeah. 2014. That's right. Nonfiction book, totally a different thing than most people think of for you. What made you think that this ship's story needed to be told? I don't know. I just had. I, I've always been. I've always loved sea stories and stories about the sea and the ocean, and especially mysteries where things mm. disappear. That's great. But I was. I was researching um, a guy called Joseph Hooker, who was a great botanist and ran Kew Gardens in London during the Victorian period. And the first thing I found was at the age of 22, this guy had gone on on a four-year journey to Antarctica. Okay. The first real sort of proper journey to Antarctica, 1839. No one knew what they were going to find, and Erebus was the ship they went on. Okay. It's a little ship, a sailing ship, went down to Antarctica. It discovered volcanoes. It discovered ice cliffs 100 feet high. It charted the whole sort of Antarctic area and got back home in four years. Um, fantastically easy, successful. Easy. But then, you know, yeah, easy peasy. Um, <laughs> then it was chosen to be um, the flagship of the greatest catastrophe in British polar exploration, which was the Northwest Passage Expedition of 1845, where everyone said, we're going to get through the Northwest Passage. We're going to connect the Atlantic and Pacific, and we won't have to go around Cape Horn. And they blew it completely. Well, they yeah. didn't blow it. I mean, they got I mean, it just wasn't the there. <laughs> and they disappeared. So I thought this is a... It was a good story of success and failure, mm -hmm. but also then when the ship was discovered, only it's only 36 feet down on the on the seabed. Huh. Uh, four years ago, I thought this is you know the story's got a beginning, middle, end, and another beginning. So yeah, right. I got I, I got very intrigued, and I thought there's a there's a good tale here. So it. The HMS Arabic embarked on epic journeys to the Arctic until it was wrecked in 1845, like you said. Yeah. It killed all 129 people on board. Yeah. But why choose to center the story on the ship instead of on the people? Well, because that was the hero of all of the story. Mm -hmm. um, that tough little ship built in Wales in 1826, you know, made of good old British oak and all that. <laughs> but the fact that it had been on... Um, 
to both ends of the earth. Now, not all, not all the people involved had been on the ship both times. So in order to tell the full story, um, instead of using the people themselves, I just used the ship. How did it get through? Mm -hmm. How did it survive? Why was it strong enough to survive ice collisions and catastrophes like that, you know? And, and, right. and to not, you know, not break up. It's still intact, the hull of it. Wait, down the there water. on the bottom, 36 yeah, feet down. Yeah, you can see it. And huh. the divers are going, the Canadians send divers down every sort of um, uh, summer when they can. When the ice melts, they go down, they try and find whatever's on the ship. And they haven't found everything yet. It's a, you know, so wow. Who knows what they're going to find? Uh, pirate gold? Who knows? Pirate gold, yeah. <laughs> so on John Cleese's autobiography. You never know. Yeah. That's <laughs> so shifting topics. Earlier this year, you traveled to North Korea for yeah. a documentary yeah. and said that everyone should visit. Why is mm. that? What? Why would, especially for the, us here in the U.S. who can't really go, why would you recommend that? I know because I just think you should see behind the headlines. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think once a country is is demonized, you tend to feel that everybody in it is sort of grim and, and angry and belligerent. And I mean, that's in, in my experience of traveling around the world, that's never the way it is. Politics have a very dark side, and people, you know, rulers and politicians and armies particularly can do very nasty things. But in any country, you've got it, we've got people living um, ordinary lives, much like ourselves. You know, bringing up kids, um, um, cooking, going to work, you know, dancing, singing, all, all that sort of stuff. And I just was curious to see whether North Korea was like that. Uh, and in fact, it is. I mean, th there is a dark side that I was not going to be able to see that. We were very, very carefully sort of guided around. But we were there for two weeks. We filmed for two weeks. And we were allowed to film stuff that I was very surprised about, really. Just, okay. just uh, you know, people partying and all that. And uh, Where, I, I'm a huge documentary fan. Where can I watch that? Is that out yet? It's National Geographic mm. uh, mm. Channel showed it two weeks ago, I think, oh, in, great. in the States. Oh, great, I'll have to look States. that up. And hopefully it will be on again, or you can access it from somewhere. All right. Yeah. No, so recently, you handed over your own bit of history to the British Library, a private yeah. archive that contained alternate endings to Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm. Do you prefer those never-before-seen endings, or are you good with what we've had to deal with for the last oh, 35 years? I quite like finding alternatives and one or two sketches that were, were really still very funny. I thought, why did, why did we not put them in? There must have been a reason. It has to be. Usually because one's trying to, even though it's Python and things are happening all over the place, we try to keep a story going. Mm -hmm. um, Get on but, with it, um, etc. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I know that, that there were several stages when we discussed different endings. Yeah. Uh, same with the you know, Life of Brian and all of them. And so it's quite nice to find that in these boxes that I've kept for years, dusty boxes, which I've now handed over to British Library, someone's gone through them and taken all the things out, that there were, there were alternatives. And we were, you know, we, Do you have a we, we were thinking about it. Of Do you have a favorite among the alternatives? Um, well, I, I think there was, um, I can't remember what happened at uh, the end of Holy Grail. I believe that the official ending was that the cops show up and everyone's arrested and off they go. Yes, that's right, yeah. We didn't, and then we, 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 um, we had a battle, that's right. There was a yes. battle that was about to start and they stopped <laughs> that. So I can't actually remember what the, there were several endings that we were going to have. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can just remember, I can remember certain sketches mm. more from, from the life of Brian that we, we never used was uh, sort of Lazarus mm. raised, you know, and, and uh, going to his doctor and <laughs> saying, you know, I keep, you know, I keep, I, I was, you were dead a week ago. Are you okay? Like, yeah, no, I'm fine now. It's just I can't get to sleep anymore. <laughs> so anyway, but things like that that we, we messed around with, which I think were funny at the time. So Monty Python was created clearly during a different era of comedy. How do you feel about the state of comedy today? Do you look at current comedians in despair, or do you feel like they're doing uh, good jokes that are actually relevant? How do you feel about it? I, I think that every period has its own kind of comedy. I think comedy now is perhaps a little more self-conscious. Mm -hmm. They're aware of things like political correctness, don't want quite how to deal with that. When we, we made Monty Python, that was 1960s, it was a kind of after the, the war and austerity and all that, suddenly people said, hey, we can, you know, we had the Beatles, we had Mary Quant designing these fantastic new dresses and all that sort of stuff. Everything could be changed. Everything, right. everything could be talked about. And, and so all our comedy was, was pretty much open. You could say, almost say anything you wanted. Um, and it was kind of whimsical. A lot of it was, uh, was kind of just, just 
very silly. I think nowadays people just, I, I think it's just a little more self-conscious about comedy and how they do it. I mean, I think, I, I don't watch a lot of comedy, but I, I, I laugh very, very easily. It doesn't have to be a comedy show, it just can be real life. You know? <laughs> we all know there are certain things that, uh, you know, make you laugh. Do you think that things are too politically correct right now, or do you think that... Ooh, uh, difficult one here, difficult. Um, we gotta ask the hard questions Yeah, AM to DM. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that comedy should, is, is one thing that should be able to be applied to any situation. Mm -hmm. um, if, if, you know, if people don't laugh, the comedy hasn't worked, and there'll be a reason for that. If people do laugh, it may be very, a very dark moment that they're laughing at, but, you know, I can remember um, being in a film that was made in, in, in England about the, the First World War, mm -hmm. and they discovered um, that there'd been a, a press which had been built by the soldiers, and it had a satirical magazine. And oh, this wow. it was all about the officers and the foolish things they were doing, and it called them names. And I mean, I've never heard about that from the First World War. You just right. think people are suffering. Right. But in the middle of that suffering and that terrible time they were having, humor was necessary to keep them going. And actually on Erebus, mm -hmm. um, when they were stuck in the ice, on New Year's Day, I think it was 1843, the, the ships were stuck fast, nowhere to go. What do they do? They have a party. and they, they built a pub out of the ice. Oh. And they carved an eight-foot woman out of the ice. Cold shots for everyone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, ice creams. <laughs> but but there, you know, they were in a very dangerous, difficult position. And, and they needed to sort of relax. They needed to make each other laugh. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's quite important. Netflix recently added most of the Monty Python catalog to its roster. Now that it's more widely available, what do you hope that people who are seeing it for the first time can really take away from it? Uh, I'd just be very interested to to f see how relaxed they are with it, you know? Yeah. Because Python was, uh, it was a jumble of things. The great thing, there was, a, there was an enormous amount, a little treasure chest of comedy in each half hour. Right. Some of it worked, some of it didn't work. <laughs> and the next show would be completely different and all that. I just wonder whether people now will get a sort of, uh, you, you know, as, as, as typed into it as, as they did at the time. Because it was always a cult show. It was never a huge, big, popular show until it came to the States in right. 1973, I think. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to see if people still um, are surprised by it, shocked by it, um, and, and, and just find it funnier than anything else around, which it was at the time. So we'll see. I certainly hope so and think so. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael. Hey, no, it's been a pleasure. Good. Uh, Erebus, One Ship, Two Epic Voyages, and The Greatest Naval Mystery of All Time is available now. Up next, we have a special Fire Tweets with Ike Barinholtz. Stay tuned, everyone. Fire! Fire! We are shaking things up with Fire Tweets today because we're getting a little help from Ike Barinholtz. Welcome, Ike. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for being I here. I like the music. Yeah, right? It gets, you, that. it gets you hyped. Bum, bum, bum. Ike is the director, writer, and star of The Oath. And before we get into the tweets, let's get started with this fire clip from his new movie. I'll tell you this right now, this is not the America that I know. Hey man, I do not want to hear your take on the country's politics right now. The fuck you think you are, Trevor Noah or something? I know I'm not Trevor Noah. Thanks for the live op-ed, okay? Now is time for practical solutions, okay? What are we doing? How is this going to end? Okay, 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 fine. Oh god, I just had flashbacks to the last two years on Twitter. Yeah. Congratulations on your directorial debut. What to you is the best part about being on the other side of the camera? Uh, having people listen to you. I mean, that's not great. When you're just an actor, they're like, oh yeah, good suggestion. But when you're a director, you're like, I want to do this, and they have to do it. Otherwise, they're out. Boom. And I fired like 45 people from this project. And I, no. I'll, I'll do more, I don't care. Get out. My, my new catchphrase is, I'm trying this, is you're fired. Oh, that could, that could get legs. That could have legs. It's fired. You said that this movie, while political in nature, is not really about family and how to, it's really about family and how to deal with the current political climate. Yes. So what will someone on the other side of the political spectrum get out of seeing this movie? Well, I really wanted to kind of shine a light on how absurd and how dug in things have gotten. And, you know, I personally am liberal, but if I made a movie where, like, liberals were the heroes, that would be kind of lame. So mm. we really kind of take no prisoners. And whether you're 
on the far right or kind of far left or in the middle, we're, we're, we're gonna make fun of you. Oh good. That's, we make fun of everyone. <laughs> Do you have any advice for families that have had holiday blowouts since the 2016 election? I, I think you should have these conversations even mm -hmm. if they're stressful, but I think it's one night and, and you should allow yourself, if there's something you enjoy that helps you cope, if it's pie, if it's bourbon, whatever it is, it's bourbon one night. Pie. Bourbon pie, you can combine the two, but I just think do whatever it takes to get through the holiday without physical violence. Fair enough. That's oh. the threshold. I like that threshold. Okay, I'm going to be handing over the button to you Woo! for your first fire tweet. Ready? Take it away. Uh, this tweet came from Birdland. <laughs> Made that noise. <laughs> Who is Iker Baron Schatz? So tell me, who is Iker Baron Schatz? Iker Baron Schatz is a farmer living mm -hmm. in the south of Holland who oh. makes goat milk, artisanal goat milk, and uh, he's never been to America, but one day I want to meet Iker Baron Schatz. We're gonna get him over here. Next guest on AM to DM will be Iker Baron Schatz. Make it happen, people. Michael backstage. Palin and Iker Baron Schatz. All right, next up from Fall Daniel. Ah! If they want to make horror movies that are realistic for millennials, they shouldn't all start with somebody buying a house. I can completely relate to that. I won't be buying property until I'm maybe 70 yeah, at this point. Yeah, I mean, the movie should, you know, really, I think, focus on, on renters. Right? That's what we do. We you rent. signed this haunted lease. <laughs> and it has no fixed rate. Oh. Beep, beep, beep. Ah, <laughs> I already have student loan debt. This is terrifying. That's, 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 a, that's a, a legit off. horror movie. Yeah. Book the next movie. Next up. Uh, David Elric tweeted, My only advice is to marry someone who likes to leave parties at the same time that you do. Ooh, that is... This is a smart man. Success. This is a smart man. If you've got one couple that wants to... St one guy that wants to stay and the wife wants to go home or vice versa, it's, you're not you're on the same page. Fights in the Ubers. Yeah, which is not fun. Just my, show up a little early mm -hmm. and then get the hell out. Make no one wants appearance. to talk to you anyways. No one wants to talk to you. <laughs> You're like, oh, they're not going to have a conversation with me. Oh, no, what will I do? Leave. No one cares. You will leave. Go the hell home. <laughs> All right, next up, we have a topical tweet from Sam Greisman. I think we've all had an Ariana friend that we smiled and nodded at as they tell, were telling us about how amazing Pete was. Ike, how do you feel about the epic love story and demise of Ariana Grande and Pete Davidson? First of all, love. I, I thought that Pete was dating Ariana Huffington. I never read the Grande. Easy mistake to make, I never read really. the Grande part, my Same bad, person. my bad. But uh, look, they're young, beautiful children, and I, I wish them nothing but the best. And I have faith in their relationship. <laughs> no, it's a little rocky right now. Be okay. We believe here, and I, I would like for you to read today's tweet of the day. Uh, uh, Amy from Twitter tweeted, <laughs> Ghosted in October. How festive. How festive. Ah, that's a I good get it. spin. He didn't call it. me back, but it's the holiday season. So, so it makes I'm sense. Uh, I feel it in my spirit. Ah, uh, high five. Bam. All right, thank you so much for joining me, Ike. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure is The much. Oath is in select theaters now and everywhere October 19th. Up next, Stephanie Alex, read your tweets. Got a little Monday morning dance for you. Well, know? I have to do something to have fun because we didn't do fire tweets today. That is very true. Got well, Stephanie, speaking of fire tweets, uh, Softy38 tweeted, being ghosting, ghosted in October is so on brand. And uh, I thought it was really fun to see uh, Ike and Hayes uh, read those fire tweets. Oh yeah, it was, so, it was so funny. I love Ike, I'm a huge fan. Mini Project, obviously. Um, but one of the funniest tweets I ever saw about Halloween was all of these like amateur looking ghosts and being like, <laughs> all these ghosts out here, but you ain't got a boo. <laughs> I don't know, I probably did do that justice, but I thought it was really funny. People, we're here for the ghost tweets, send us all of your ghost and Halloween themed tweets. Yeah. We'll read them. So we actually got a ton of responses to our discussion about the New York Times story about Jared Kushner. Blasian FMA said, why do the ultra rich not want to pay taxes? Do you know how happy I'd be if I made the gross amount of money I make before taxes? But I don't. Why do they hoard their money and break the law like that? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it's really interesting how we've been learning so much about how the ultra rich do not pay taxes or are able to kind of get around the tax code with these stories like the big New York Times investigation about Trump and now this about Jared Kushner. 
it's it's a little demoralizing to it's know very, that, it's very demoralizing. Like I I I believe in paying taxes. I think I'm not, you know, saying we should not pay taxes, but it's not really fair that some people should have to pay taxes and just if you have if you can pay enough to have someone do your taxes for you who can get you out of it then you shouldn't have to pay it. Right. We should all have to pay it. I think it's really infuriating also when you make so much less money than these incredibly rich people and you're actually, you're paying so much of your paycheck mm -hmm. that it's just, it's so disheartening to see. And you know, the rich are out here getting richer, so that's the way that goes. Yep. Well, listen, during my sit-down with Mira Sorvino, Scary J. Blodge, amazing uh, username there, had this <laughs> to say. <laughs> Um, sexual harassment being described as a gateway drug, I can definitely agree. Um, Mira was just so incredibly elegant when, uh, and eloquent and elegant, in fact, um, when she was talking about the different kinds of sexual misconduct and, of course, that there can be harassment and, you know, forms of assault. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just talking about her friends with breast cancer is very oh, yeah. hard to listen to, but also obviously oh, important to listen to. So important and, and also just really incredible to see how long she's done this kind of activism and how vulnerable she was. I really yeah. I had an appreciation for that. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Mira. And thank you to all of our guests, Ike Barinholtz, Michael Palin, Hayes Brown, Amin Ali Akbar, Mira Sabrina, like we just said, Paul McLeod, William Summer, Pervez Shalwani, and Arzine Garashi. And Stephanie and I will be back hosting tomorrow. See you then. We'll be able to do fire tweets tomorrow, maybe. I don't know. Maybe. 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 Because your ghost tweet. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs>